0: Welcome to Season 1, Episode 12 of the Echo Corpus Christi Podcast, the podcast featuring Corpus Christi's creators, makers, doers, and builders. Dr. Jennifer Pollack is our guest on this episode. Jenny is a marine habitat expert at the Heart Research Institute at Texas A&M Corpus Christi, where she's also the chair for coastal conservation and restoration. Her areas of study and practice include oyster reef and circulate reef restoration all along the Texas coast but with an emphasis in the coastal bend in Baffin Bay. Jenny and her family moved here several years ago so that she could begin working as a postdoc researcher at the Heart Research Institute. Not only has Jenny been instrumental in forming and leading the Sink Your Shucks Oyster Reef Restoration Program, which she performs along with the Water Street Restaurants, she's also a tenured professor at Texas A&M Corpus Christi, and she's become a key member of Representative Todd Hunter's Mariculture Advisory Team, which recently helped the Texas legislature pass a new law allowing oyster farming in Texas coastal waters. That new industry will rely heavily on the research Jenny and her team have developed and continue to perform in marine habitat creation and health. So in the not too distant future, you and I will need to thank Dr. Jenny Pollock for the Texas Gulf Coast oysters that we eat. Let's visit with Jenny. Well, Jenny Pollock, welcome to the Etch Corpus Christi podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be
0: here. Thank you. We're very excited to have you today. I know that um, we're going to get into a good discussion about oysters. So I hope people are listening to this at a time when they've already eaten lunch or perhaps are on their way to get some oysters so that yeah, they're not so going to get super hungry. Although we won't probably talk too much about cooking oysters. We're going to talk about growing oysters. But before we get there, I like to ask most of the guests that, started, that come on the podcast, kind of what is their Corpus story? How did they get here? Are they Corpus natives?
1: Yeah, no, I am not a Corpus native. I don't know that I could pull off a Corpus Christi accent if I tried. But
0: we are <laughs> Do part we have of one?
1: that. I don't think I have one. I might take an, outsider, an outsider
0: to tell us if we I have don't one.
1: Know. <laughs> uh, but we are, you know, we're part of the growing group of folks in Corpus who have found our way here, you know, for one reason or another later mm-hmm. in life. So my husband Jeff and I moved here in 2007 from South Carolina, and we moved here right when I had right after I'd finished my PhD at the University of South Carolina, mm-hmm. and we moved here for um, a postdoctoral fellowship that I had here at the Heart Research Institute, uh, working with an endowed chair, uh, Dr. Paul Montagna, and his his field of study is to study the bays and estuaries and to understand how the fresh water that comes down the rivers, the quantity and the quality of that water, can affect the health of the bays. And I came down here to train with him and and. Um, contribute to his lab and also mm-hmm. kind of learn learn his techniques and approaches to science.
0: So tell us a little bit about what a postdoc is that might not be familiar to some of the listeners.
1: Sure. So a postdoc is a, a training position that you would take after you've completed your PhD. And it's it's fairly common in my field in marine science or, or even expected. If you want to become a professor or a, a, an academic within a, a university system mm-hmm. that you would take a postdoctoral training position between your PhD and between getting a, an academic faculty position. Okay, And it's essentially to train you to become an independent scientist. So even though you've gotten a permanent degree, a, a terminal degree at that point, your PhD, you, you've been a student. So this is the step that really allows you to develop your own research portfolio mm-hmm. and also train with somebody new, you
0: know. In your postdoc, are you following the same research that you were doing in your PhD program? Or are you creating are you entering into a new field, or what does that look like for coming in as a postdoc?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So most people are going to take a postdoc that's related but somewhat different from what they've done in their PhD. So, you know, when you've completed your PhD, you've kind of like wrung all the good stuff out of the rag that okay. of, of that field of study. You've kind of squeezed it all out. Mm-hmm. And it's really a good time for you to start learning different types of perspectives or different, um, you know, approaches to science. So coming here, for example, in South Carolina, I had focused a lot on shrimp, learning about shrimp and how um, shrimp are a very important commercial fishery in South Mm -hmm. Carolina, and um, understanding just the biology of that species, and that lent itself very well to coming here to work on oysters, which are similar species that works in, or that lives in the estuaries, and also is an important commercial species. So Mm -hmm. I've always been very interested in answering questions or, or solving problems with science that are really sort of uh, have a management basis. You know, mm-hmm. how do we better manage these fisheries? How do we better manage how to keep these populations healthy? And so the, the research was related, but the, the topic was slightly different.
0: So sort of a crossover or maybe a, a, a different use of, or maybe it is exactly what it is, applied science as opposed to I'll just call it classroom science, for lack of a better word. Basic science. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we t- we sort of divide it up into basic versus applied science, okay. and I'm much more of an applied scientist. And in general, the the other chairs here at the Heart Research Institute take a very applied approach to science. Okay. And you know, so when Ed Hart, um, when he endowed this institute. His sort of goal or his sort of mission for everyone was was make a difference. Okay, and so he was very much interested in the fact that we go further than traditional academics would go. So we don't do a research project and publish a paper and then move on to the right. re- next research project. He was very much um, uh, encouraged us to to take what we've learned and push it out into the community, push it out to managers or conservation mm-hmm. organizations, and really make a difference with that science in a, in a larger sphere. And that's one of the things that really has drawn a lot of us to being passionate about working here at the Institute.
0: So why oysters?
1: Coming mean, doesn't from everyone love oysters? <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I certainly do. I know some people that maybe have texture issues. Oh,
1: come on. Put it that way. A fried but oyster? Come on. You fry anything and it's delicious.
0: That is very, very true. So, but what, uh, you go from shrimp, shrimp are, you know, they're, they're mobile, right? Mm-hmm. In the water, they're out swimming around. And then you said before we started recording that, In South Carolina, they would come into the Bay areas Mm -hmm. at a certain time of the season. I don't know if that's true here in Texas as well, but they're they're swimming around a bunch and they get a bunch of different places and you get to kind of watch them do that. Oysters just kind of sit there.
1: Yeah. So oysters are very interesting to me because they are both an organism, the Mm -hmm. oyster, and their habitat. They form an oyster reef. So they have, they're what we would call um, a foundation species. So they are building habitat and creating an environment for lots of organisms to live that would not be there were the oysters not there. So there's a lot that's interesting about oysters. You know, ecologically, they do lots of great things for us mm. in the environment. So an adult oyster can filter something like 50 gallons of oyster of, of water, excuse me, in a day. Wow. So think about all the the acreage, the all mm-hmm. the acres of oysters that we have in all of our bays in Texas. And think about the water quality benefits and the water clarity benefits Mm -hmm. that they're providing for us. We know that those reefs also are these incredibly complex three-dimensional structures. You know, they're essentially our Texas equivalent of a coral reef. So there's nooks and crannies and things are swimming in and out. And, you know, besides being habitat for those things, you have the sport fish that are coming Mm -hmm. in and eating those things. And you have birds that are foraging on the oyster reefs. And so you have... These habitat benefits, these benefits for recreational fishing and tourism, mm-hmm. and then of course they also form these protective barriers for our shorelines. So if there, if there's an oyster reef that's oriented parallel to a shoreline, it's essentially a natural living breakwater. Mm-hmm. So you can think about hurricanes coming in and all the waves that they generate; those are going to break on an oyster reef before they come in and break and erode um, like our sensitive salt marshes mm-hmm. or our where our properties are, you know, our, our homes and our businesses. Sure. So the oysters kind of do much more than the you know the sum of, of the of its parts. Mm-hmm. But um, the oysters are also quite interesting because the reason I came down here to study them was to try to understand um, to use them as an indicator of changes in the environment. Okay. So the oysters are one of those iconic canaries in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. You know when. When oysters spawn, it's gonna be a quick, quick biology lesson, they have these <laughs> tiny larval planktonic oysters that you okay. would never recognize as an oyster. They're swimming around in the mm-hmm. water column, you know, but as tiny as the head of a pin. And after about two to three weeks, they metamorphose like a caterpillar to a butterfly, okay. and they have to find something to attach to at that point. So they, the most reliable place for them to attach is gonna be the shells of the older generations of oysters. Mm-hmm. because those environmental conditions are, are naturally good for oysters because the granddaddy oysters and the grandma oysters are all living that's there. Right. So once they attach to the reef, they form their shell and they're there for life. So the way that we can use them as an indicator, of course, is that because they can't move when the environmental conditions change, if the reef health starts to degrade, if the oysters mm-hmm. start to die, that's a really strong indicator to us that something is wrong in the bay and we need to start understanding it. Compare that to... If you're trying to study shrimp or fish, if the conditions are bad, it's very likely they've already yeah. swum away, moved into a new location, whereas the oysters are, are stuck there.
0: Are there other organisms in the water column that are like oysters that are kind of additional canaries in a coal mine?
1: Sure. There, you know, we oftentimes study a group of organisms that we call benthos, okay. and benthos are organisms that live on the bottom of the bay. And these are things that probably nobody has really given much thought to, but tiny little worms tiny little clams crustaceans you know the the juvenile stages of of shrimp Mm -hmm. and crabs and things like that that don't move very far they're pretty you know they might only move within you know a meter or a couple feet Mm -hmm. during the course of their life but and it's the same sort of a thing that they're they're impacted by these changes in the environment that are happening over the top of them so um the interesting thing with oysters i think is that because it is an important commercial fishery, because oyster reefs are very large, and if particularly if you like to fish, you you know where the reefs are. It's something that people can understand a little bit more that that is more understandable as mm-hmm. a um, as an indicator indicator of change in the bays.
0: Where along the Texas Gulf Coast are the is the largest concentration of oyster reefs? Well is so is there such a place? I mean, yeah, sure, way. there okay. is.
1: So the oysters are because they live in the bays, they mm-hmm. are dependent on a really delicate balance between the mixing of the fresh water coming down the rivers okay. and the mixing of the gulf water, which is very salty. And so they're gonna be their distribution is gonna be governed by that change in salinity, how salty the water is. Because of that, we the the Texas coast has a really interesting gradient of increasing precipitation, more rain as mm-hmm. we move up towards the Louisiana. Right. Um, the border with Louisiana, less as you move down towards Mexico. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we have much fresher bays as you move towards Louisiana. And as you, if you drove the whole coast, you'd go from fresh to extremely salty. In fact, okay. the lower Laguna Madre has more evaporation than it has rainfall. So really? you have hypersaline mm-hmm. bays where the salinity in these bays is more salty than the Gulf. It's crazy. Wow. So you can, you know, we're talking about if the, if the Gulf has 35 parts per thousand parts of salt per mm-hmm. thousand parts of water, we're talking about 100 plus parts Whoa. per thousand down in the, the Laguna. So oysters don't like those extremes. Okay. They can't sit in fresh water for very long, mm-hmm. they can't sit in extreme salt water for very long. They like this balance. We typically find the, the largest concentrations of them Copano and Aransas Bay, mm-hmm. Saint, um, San Antonio Bay, okay. Matagorda Bay. The largest commercial fishery for oysters in Texas comes out of Galveston Bay. But of course, Galveston Bay, as many people know, they've, they've suffered, that, mm-hmm. that oyster fishery has suffered a lot lately. So, you know, Hurricane Harvey came through, dumped a ton of fresh water on the land. All that fresh water then, uh, you know, eventually drained into mm-hmm. the bay. You have a bay with so much fresh water that it became essentially a freshwater lake wow. and killed most of the oysters in there. Then you have things like spills that have happened mm-hmm. recently, um, in uh, up around the Houston-Galveston area, and then you have, you know, we had a really wet spring and summer again, right? And again, the Galveston Bay region, the bay again down to almost zero, you know, fresh water, zero mm-hmm. parts per thousand, zero salinity, and the oysters right. just can't take it when they're sitting in that fresh water for a mm-hmm. long period of time. Um, so although the conditions in Texas are quite amenable for the oysters to live in most of the bays. When you have these big droughts or mm-hmm. freshwater flooding events or storms, they kind of find their sweet spot, which tends to be sort of in the coastal bend and the middle Texas coast.
0: Mm-hmm. So did Galveston become the largest commercial fishery because at historically it had more reefs or just by the nature of it being basically the oldest city in Texas that's on a, on the coast?
1: There are a large number of reefs in Galveston Bay for sure. The Galveston Bay system is also quite interesting, the way the fishery is run It's different than any of the other bays in Texas in that there are leases, there are commercial leases that can be held by leaseholders. And Mm so the leaseholders um, can essentially farm that area of bay bottom like a farmer. It's, you know, they're the only ones who can harvest the oysters from those sections of the bay. Whereas everywhere else in Texas and all the other parts of Galveston Bay are public reefs. So if you have a commercial oyster license, you can go fish on any of those reefs. You okay. can take your boat. Even if you live here, you could go fish in Galveston Bay. Mm-hmm. If it's not so good in Galveston Bay, you could come down to Matagorda Bay, okay. whatever you'd like. But on those leases, it's a, it's a private lease, and it really allows them to sort of um, sustain the resource in a, in a more sustainable way because of that.
0: Do you find that because they have a commercial purpose for sustaining the reefs that they do a good job of it, or are commercial fishermen, uh, oystermen... Um, are they good citizens, or do they create complexities for people in your line of work in restoring reefs?
1: Uh, yes, both. I would okay. say, right, and it, and I think that that's true of any field or any you mm-hmm. know discipline. So um, we've worked with a lot of good oyster fishermen. You know, they obviously have probably the most need for oysters you to bet. be in the water Absolutely. because it's their livelihood. Mm-hmm. But the challenge, I think, that they're all. Have to deal with is that their livelihood is dependent on a public resource. So if somebody else is coming in and fishing a reef unsustainably, it's going to affect everybody else who's out there. Okay. So, um, so it's a challenge. You know, they mm-hmm. can be doing the best job that they can, but if somebody else isn't, it's it's affecting the same pool of resources that's available for everyone. That is one thing that the leaseholders have a benefit of is they can it's only them fishing on their leases. And so they can really take care of it and they can put more material down. So one thing that happens when you harvest oyster reefs, that's a challenge to managers is when you harvest an oyster, you harvest its habitat because the shells are part of the habitat. Right.
0: You're taking the places that the baby oysters were going to land after their hatch. Yeah.
1: Yes. And so over time, if those shells are being removed at an unsustainable level and there aren't enough there for the younger generations to attach to, then you're going to slowly see those reef populations Mm -hmm. decline. But a lot of the leaseholders have the benefit of they can go put shell or other materials back down on those reefs and really maintain those fundamental building blocks to keep the reef going.
0: Are there synthetic materials that you use to rebuild a reef with that, so you don't have to just get a whole bunch of empty oyster shells?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, you okay. can. In fact, we, we've published a couple of papers on this. You know, Oyster shells are the most desirable thing to restore reefs with because it's the natural, it's an oyster. that's how a right. reef is, is right. made. But reef restoration programs are limited by the amount of shell that's out there. So think about all the oysters that go out of state, mm-hmm. out of Texas to other states. Um, think about... Um, you know, if the if the oysters go to a restaurant mm-hmm. that those shells are gonna end up in the trash and go to a landfill. And I I would love to touch on this a little bit at we the will. end, our shell recycling mm-hmm. program. But so that we, we lose a lot of that really important resource mm-hmm. to other places. Um, so we've we did some research to try to figure out, okay, well we don't want to be limited by that. Are there right. other materials that could be used? So we looked at river rock, limestone. So those are two mined you know, mined products mm-hmm. or new products, if you will, that just come out of the ground. And then we also looked at crushed concrete, recycled concrete okay. that comes from the washout of concrete trucks. So after a job, there's mm-hmm. going to be this concrete residue. Well, they wash it out of the truck before they're going to go do another one. But that concrete is very clean to the point that, you know, it hasn't been on a road. There's no you know, right. oil spilled out. There's no rebar in it that mm-hmm. has to be removed. So we looked at using that material. And then we've even looked at using porcelain recovered really? from the residential waste stream. So can we use toilets, tubs, mm-hmm. sinks, crush that porcelain down, you know, remove all the metals, clean them up. Can we use that porcelain and crush mm-hmm. it? And, and then oyster shells. And what we found is that, you know, and this probably isn't a surprise for people who live and work on the water, but mm-hmm. anything that falls in the water, if you pull it out, there's probably an oyster that's growing on sure. it. You know, you pull a mm-hmm. shoe out and there's an oyster mm-hmm. growing on it. So oysters successfully yes. attach to all that stuff. But what was different was the cost of that stuff. So we wanted to try to figure out is, what's the best bang for your buck? What's the best value? Mm -hmm. And for us, we found that the um, recycled concrete and the oyster shell represented the best value. And really, if you do sort of like a cradle-to-grave analysis, which is something that a lot of industries would do, you Mm -hmm. know, where do these materials come from and then where do they go through through the, the end of their life, their usable life? it's much better to use a recycled product like that crushed concrete or like the oyster shell Mm -hmm. than it is to go potentially cause an upstream you know disturbance by mining river rock or taking out limestone so yes and the the porcelain worked surprisingly well as well i'm very
0: surprised because it's so smooth well so that's the thing is the
1: oysters attached to the rough parts that are broken okay they attach to the smooth parts also but you almost can pop them Mm -hmm. off of there so it's not good for you know long term sure. attachment, but they will attach and grow on all of that stuff.
0: So when you're when you're testing out these different um, surfaces for the oysters to grow on, are you doing them in the bay or do you all have labs here at the at the institute where you can We've practice? done both. Okay.
1: Yep, we've done both things. So we have um so for example, most of our work, you know, ninety nine percent of it is done out in the bays.
0: Okay.
1: And that means that we're really creative, and Mm -hmm. we like to work with people who are kind of MacGyvers and have good ideas of ways to do things. So, you know, if if you've never worked in the water, it's so much harder than working not in the water. (laughs) So anything you want to accomplish, even the simplest task, and then put yourself in the water, it's so much harder to figure out. So most of our stuff we've done out in the water, because, you know, if you want to see if something's going to naturally attach, Mm -hmm. you want to put it out. Near a natural reference reef to be sure. able to tell well what's happening in the natural reef if you do that in the lab, you've created you know arguably an unnatural situation mm-hmm. that maybe doesn't represent what would actually happen. so right. most of it is in the in the field, but we've done some cool stuff in the lab so for example, we've taken those different materials that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. And we've looked at some of the organisms that live in reefs, and we'll put them in a tank. So we'll take a tank, divide it in half, one half gets river rock, for example, one half mm-hmm. gets oyster shells, put some of those critters that live among oyster reef. And then over time, let's say we run a you know, four-hour experiment where every 15 minutes we go and look, okay, where are the organisms mm-hmm. sitting? Are they inhabiting more the river rock or the oyster shell? Okay. And then if we put a predator in there, so let's say we put a you know, a red drum or a blue crab, and we tether it so it can't actually eat the little predators that are in there. And we say, okay, this is a more natural situation where mm-hmm. there's also predators out there. Now what do the organisms live on? So we have done those lab experiments where we can control right. all of those unknowns, and we have clear water, which, right?
0: So you can see, so you can which see, is helpful, <laughs> and you have air
1: conditioning, <laughs> right?
0: Which is, you, yeah. you don't have to stand in the muck yourself necessarily. Exactly. Sure. So it's
1: a, it's a little bit of both, mm-hmm. but yeah, the lab experiments really help us understand exactly what's driving some of the patterns that we see out in the bay
0: so when you're bringing uh whether it's the oyster shells themselves or one of these other um synthetic substances into the bay itself how do you get it to stick
1: how do you get the oysters yeah, to stick? no
0: the actual substance you're bringing in that is a good because question. i'm assuming you're not building a reef on land and then just dropping it out into no, the water no we're not but it has to be recreated and to some extent in the water yes but so
1: there's there are basically two ways that we build reef So one way I would call sort of the deeper water, large scale reefs. And to do that, we're working with um, marine construction companies that are gonna bring barges out and a drag line. And essentially what we do ahead of time is we go out there, we scope the area, we do some um, studies of the bottom to make sure that the bottom is gonna be stable enough Mm -hmm. to support these tons and tons of material that we're about to set on the bottom of the bay. And um, then we'll stake it out. So we'll go put PVC poles out there to show where the shells need to go and then we'll create maps and we'll share those with the marine construction company and then we'll go out there while they're building the reef. But what they're essentially doing is taking the oyster shells out in barges, using that drag line and scoop by scoop, filling in the areas that we've staked out as high above the bottom as we've asked them to do okay. it. There are other ways that you can do it, such as, um, People may have seen this, but almost like a fire hose where mm-hmm. you spray it at the oyster shells and the oyster shells go shooting off the side of the barge. Kind that's, like an, that's another yeah. That's a good stress relief. Sure. <laughs> and it works really well if you've got a reef below you and you're just trying to add more material okay. to it. But if you're spraying oyster shell over a mud bottom, mm-hmm. you're just gonna have a mud bottom with sprinkled with oyster shells. So gotcha. we build it up really directly. And then the other way that we do it. One way that we really love to do it is we have these community-based habitat restoration events and we do those every spring at Goose Island State Park. Mm-hmm. And to do those events what we do is we bag up the oyster shells. So when we build those deeper water reefs, we don't need to attach them with a net or anything like that because they're really under the most active sort of currents and waves. That was going to be below my question surface. I had.
0: Yeah, how do you get it to not just wash away? Yeah,
1: so it's deep enough it's deep down enough. that okay. it's yeah that it escapes that those pressures, And in fact, to give you an example of this, we restored a reef in St. Charles Bay, adjacent to Goose Island State Park, and we completed that restoration one month before Hurricane Harvey mm-hmm. passed directly over the top of it. Wow. And talk about a test for an oyster reef. Sure. And we were just, I mean, we were very fearful that the reef mm-hmm. was going to be gone and that it was a lot of hard work and investment. Right. And when we got back out there, which was, you know, another month after that, because of all of the destruction mm-hmm. from Harvey, we found that not only was the reef still there and in place, but we had seen a new crop of oysters had attached to that reef. So whether it was just coincidence or mm-hmm. whether the the hurricane had induced the oysters to spawn and this, the baby oysters had attached, but it was just sort of like the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. We had lost some of our, we had put some monitoring trays and equipment out around the reef to mm-hmm. monitor it and we'd lost some of those, but the reef was intact, which was wow. just, you know, made us feel good about Mm -hmm. our design you know it really held up yeah it worked (laughs) but these community to return to what i said these community-based events are really cool they're in very shallow water we invite school groups out we have Mm -hmm. girl scout troops and boy scout troops we have elder hostelers we have winter texans kind of all ages come out there and we use we we take the shells that we have reclaimed from these restaurants and seafood wholesalers that Mm -hmm. we work with and we have a bunch of stations. So essentially, they bag up the oyster shells into this mesh. This mesh. They bring those bags of shell down to the, the edge of the waterfront. We do that for a while, like an hour or so. And then once we have a critical mass of bags made, we take those bags and we go out into the water kind of assembly line style. So all the kids go out and get in the water, we pass the bags down. And then essentially, you just restore a small section of reef and shallow water, almost like you would kind of pave a, a, a road or, you know, tile your kitchen floor. You just put those bags right up next to each other and restore some reef. So if you can think about the bag is enclosing all of these oyster shells, it has a big mesh so that the oyster larvae can get Mm -hmm. through the bag and attach to the shells, and it sort of forms a little nucleus of the reef. So the idea is over time, it gets totally encased in this veneer of living Mm -hmm. oysters, but we bag up those shells because it's in really shallow water, and if we didn't bag that up those shells up, they would really just wash down the...
0: Are you restoring the reef? Are you creating a new reef when you do that? Or are you patching an existing reef?
1: We're doing both. So in some cases, we are... There'll be an area of reef that's degraded. And so we're going in and enhancing that reef. Or there's an area of reef where the reef is healthy, but there's a section of it that's Mm -hmm. missing. And so we're kind of patching that in. Or um, what we're doing is... At Goosan State Park, this area that we're working in right now, we've worked in different areas around the park because we work a lot with Texas Parks and Wildlife to identify some needs. This area that we're working in now has had acres and acres of erosion Mm. um, over the past several decades just from wave action moving across St. Charles Bay. And so we also can use those oyster bags to form sort of a a breakwater Mm -hmm. or... um, sort of like a stable structure against, with the marsh, against sort of the, where the marsh grass is to sort of hold it in place okay. and keep the, or keep the erosion at bay. So it's sort of multifaceted, depending mm-hmm. on which section we're working on and what the needs are of that shoreline, we can use the oyster shells in different ways.
0: Do the bags stay there forever, or are they somewhat biodegradable, such that after baby oysters start to attach and more shells grow, they just kind of become part of the seen? That's a
1: good question. So the bags that we use right now are an aquaculture mesh bag, and okay. so they're a, they're a plastic-based product. They're like a polyethylene-based product. The, the point behind them is that they're UV-resistant, okay. so they would hold the shells there, not degrade, and then mm-hmm. get encased by these living oysters. Okay. What we're starting this year, I'm actually really excited about, I'm glad you asked this question, <laughs> is we got funding from EPA, the mm-hmm. uh, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to To investigate some bags made with natural fibers okay. because we really have been feeling, we have mixed feelings about sure. this. And so we're um, we're starting this project this, this spring. In fact, the, the folks who come out to our community-based events will help us with this. So we've okay. got a bunch of different products that we have in like a cotton and a jute mm-hmm. and a cellulose fiber and a bunch of different things that are just 100% natural fibers to see can we use one of these alternative materials that's a natural product mm-hmm. that's a more biodegradable product and can it work you know it may be that it just degrades too quickly in the water right. and we can't use it but best case scenario is that it holds them in place long enough for it to sort of naturally cement together as the oysters grow there and then the bag is gone and then you just have oyster shells and oyster reef there and that's that's the best case scenario mm-hmm. and that's what i'm hoping for and you know we we have a whole bunch of things that we've identified to try different products to try. And my, you know, my best case scenario, what I would love to happen is that we can identify a product that we can then push out to Mm -hmm. other folks doing this work all around the U.S. and say, you know, this is something that works that hopefully is cost effective and removes the possibility of, you know, adding more plastic-based pollution Mm -hmm. into the water if, you know, if those bags are to break down. And like I said, it's sort of, it's, uh, it's hard to know if it'll work or not, and those aquaculture bags are, are meant for being in the water and right. for not breaking down. And
0: they're meant to stay there for at least the length of the amount of time that the oysters need to really exactly. grow around them, sure.
1: But we just feel like, you know, it can't hurt to try something That's exactly else. right. Why yeah. not
0: to give it a shot? Exactly. And with the EPA's funding, that probably helps.
1: Yeah, exactly. For sure.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned a moment ago that you have, uh, you get some shells from oysters and from commercial fishermen. Yes. Um, are those all local here in Corpus or are you getting them from kind of all up and down the coast or where do you source those?
1: We get shells from several places. So our our biggest champion and our, you know, somebody who started the program with us back in 2009, our oyster shell recycling program is Brad Lomax at Water Street. Mm -hmm. You know, he was somebody who right away recognized that the oyster shells shouldn't be going to the landfill i mean in fact i believe he came to a colleague of mine and said you know these things weigh a lot Right. they take up a lot of volume mm-hmm. there's isn't there don't you need these like shouldn't these go right. somewhere else should they be going to the trash
0: right. can we do something else with them please, yeah, please, my, d- please my dumpster please, guys are right now. there must be another way there
1: must be another way yeah and this is actually kind of serendipitous because where i came from in the carolinas there are some very active oyster shell recycling programs that are run by their state agencies okay It's a little bit different in the Carolinas because the tide goes way out at low tide. And so people who want to eat oysters there just go out, wade out, and collect buckets of oysters at low tide. Uh, Here, you know, unless you have a dredge behind your boat, you're probably not going to get oysters Mm -hmm. yourself. You're going to go eat them at a restaurant. So we had to sort of think about how could you set up a a shell recycling program here. And so working with Brad and working with the Port of Corpus Christi that leases us Mm -hmm. some land for a stockpile, uh, we kicked this program off. Um, like I said in two thousand nine. And okay. basically how it works now is at the restaurant, you know, if you're gonna go eat at the raw bar, you've got the shucker mm-hmm. who's taking the top shell mm-hmm. off, shucking that off and it goes into a special bin. Then you get your delicious plate of oysters right. and then when the busser comes to take that plate from you, they take the bottom shell of oyster of the oyster off of the plate instead of throwing it in the trash. They put it also into a separate bin. So they've got this bin of oyster shells that they're continually mm-hmm. filling and then bringing outside to a, a special bin that we have that they dump it into. And then we come as much as once per day, okay. depending how busy they are. Mm-hmm. We pick up those shells. We bring them to our stockpile at the Port of Corpus Christi, dump them off there, come back, rinse off the bins, return them mm-hmm. to the restaurants. And the, um, we have to keep them, um, based on the Texas Parks and Wildlife rules and regulations, we have to keep them out in the sun for about six months, at least six months, to bleach, to sun bleach so that, you know, if the oysters happen to come from, say, Florida, mm-hmm. we don't want to introduce any invasives or disease or anything like that yeah, into we don't our bed. Yeah. And with we you. don't want any Floridians no, in our base.
0: No. no. <laughs> Can happens, we pick some other too? From Florida. Hey. <laughs> well we'll make an exception. There's always an exception. So, no, that's interesting. So, the, the six month process of bleaching pretty well eliminates oh, any yeah. risk of that, or perhaps some um, cocktail sauce being stuck on a shell still. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well,
1: imagine sitting outside for six months in the summer in Corpus Christi and you'd right. be pretty sun-well, maybe not sun-bleached. I won't have much left, that's sunburned for sure. I'm, I'm,
0: I'm pale enough to not survive that.
1: So, he's a good partner, uh-huh. but we also have-we've um, worked with Groomers Seafood. So, okay. Groomers, um, as a lot of you may know, the You know, they closed their North Beach location because of the Harbor Bridge. Mm -hmm. They're now working on opening a new location on SPID. And we, when they've been going, we have recycled. So from Brad's, we'll recycle, or from Water Street from Brad Lomax, we'll recycle about 1,200 pounds of shell per day at our max. Wow. From groomers, we're recycling as much as 10,000 pounds of shell per day. Really? Because those shuckers are in there just shucking like crazy. They've got, you know... They're su- supplying seafood to places like Cisco, up okay. in San Antonio. Okay. Those oysters are going everywhere. So Groomers
0: isn't just a retail business.
1: Correct. Okay. Yep, correct. You can get fresh seafood there. You know, I highly recommend it. In fact, but, yeah. but not just also, because they're a project partner.
0: Right, and I think that's. I, I had no idea that they were doing that expansive of a business, which is exciting yes. for sure.
1: And we've now added uh, two new restaurants that we've been working with: Scuttlebutts out on mm-hmm. Padre Island. And Virginia's up in Port Aransas. Sure. So we're we've been pulling shells in from them as well. And um, the other thing that we do is we go up to Fiesta mm-hmm. Oyster Bake, we recycle all the shells from that festival. Oh awesome. We go up to the Austin Oyster Festival, recycle mm-hmm. all the shells from their festival. Wow. So we've, you know, we've found creative ways to try to get the shells that are out there, particularly these big festival events mm-hmm. where you can get good bang for your buck. Sure. To get those shells back. And the benefit is we also get to kind of talk to folks who are out there and talk, you know, they're always wondering, what are you doing? Right. Where are you, what, taking, where are you taking my shells?
0: <laughs> Is there a special dump I don't know about? Yeah. We say, right. you
1: did a good thing. You're, res- you're yeah. restoring habitat. They're like, great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Pass me another beer.
1: Exactly.
0: Um, so do you go, could you, could you feasibly go all throughout the Texas region to get the shells or do you need to be within a certain um, distance from Corpus where you have to store them?
1: It it makes the most sense for these re- shell recycling programs to be fairly local or small regional ba- um, on their basis just because at some point you're spending more time going back and forth, money, mm. fuel, you know, going back and forth to pick up these oysters than it would be to just start to use... you know, a recycled concrete or something like that, like that instead. So for example, the Galveston Bay Foundation has an oyster shell recycling program that pulls from the Houston and Galveston area. And so they do a good job of making sure that those shells get back into the water. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're all really operating under the same philosophy, which is that when the shells go to the landfill, it's this important resource that's out of place. And where it needs to be is, you know, back where, back in the bay is to grow and sustain oyster reefs.
0: So oyster recycling, I know, is not the only uh, partnership that Mr. Lomax has with the Heart Research Institute. Um, I'd love to talk a bit about, and I think I'm going to pronounce it correctly, is it mariculture?
1: Yes, mariculture. And
0: farming oysters like you would farm corn or something of that nature. I've read about it happening in other states, and I've eaten oysters in other states, and you can order them by the location where they were grown. And as I understand it, in my very um, Uneducated mind regarding oysters. We're getting ready to be able to do that here. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about that. How did the How did the process? What is required to be able to farm oysters from a legislative perspective? And then we'll eventually get to what is actually required to to farm an oyster.
1: Sure. So I have to, you know, Brad, like you said, was. Really instrumental in this legislate this legislation passing. Okay. He worked very closely with a colleague of mine here at the institute, Dr. Joe Fox, okay. who's an aquaculture expert, to really work with our state legislators, our state representatives, Todd Hunter. Mm-hmm. You know, really hats off to him. He did the lion's share of the work in getting this passed. And the idea is that we have all of this coastal waterfront. We have all these bays right. that are really ideal habitat for oysters, but we're the only coastal state in the United States that does not allow aquaculture. So there's this opportunity that's really being missed. And mm-hmm. of course, there's also this huge opportunity for tech, you know, Texans love things that come from Texas, like we feel, feel very then, strongly like we want to buy our meat from a local farm in Texas, you know. Absolutely. And the same is, you know, when tourists, and it's not just Texans who feel right. that way, but tourists come down, they want fresh seafood coming out of the sure. bay. And you know, when you talk to Brad, he'll tell you it's it's it can be an unreliable thing, right. ensuring a sustainable supply of fresh mm-hmm. seafood to the restaurant, to always be able to have oysters on the half shell, always have different types of um, seafood available. Right. And aquaculture can be the answer to that problem. The good thing about oyster aquaculture is that, you know, as I said before, oysters provide a lot of benefits mm-hmm. to the environment. So oftentimes, when people think of aquaculture, they, they might think about like salmon aquaculture, sure. and they may have heard about kind of the environmental damages mm-hmm. or negative mm-hmm. impacts of these really dense fish farms that right. go in. And oysters really don't have that because while they're in the water growing, they are, again, filtering mm-hmm. the water, you know, remo- removing their food, which is the phytoplankton, but also cleaning and clearing the right. water, providing habitat, doing all of these beneficial things. So it's kind of a natural mm-hmm. thing. If we're going to start culturing some sort of a species in the marine environment, why not start with oysters? Sure. And the reason they call it mariculture, it's just essentially marine aquaculture, Okay. So different than, you know, a little bit different than agriculture, but we still mm-hmm. also can call it oyster farming. And, you know, the difference between oyster fishing and oyster farming, of course, is that you're going to own the stock at, in, during right. some part of its um, of its life cycle. So typically the way that it will work, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're still in its infancy in Texas. There's, you're not allowed to put any oysters in the water yet. I know that um, Representative Hunter has said in September 2020, he wants to see oysters in the water in Texas. So it's coming Mm -hmm. quickly. But the way that it would work typically is that you would get what we would call brood stock. So those would be the adult oysters, the ones that you can spawn to make the baby oysters. You would collect some of those from the area that you want to be growing oysters. You would spawn those, you would get the baby oysters, Mm -hmm. and you would grow them up probably in a hatchery
0: okay. um,
1: to something that's maybe like the size of your pinky fingernail. Mm-hmm. And then we would call those seed oysters. At that point, you would take those small oysters, you would put them into cages out on your area, your aquaculture farm, and you would let them grow. You would let them um, feed in the environment. Mm-hmm. They're voracious feeders. There's a reason that people don't, aquacult- don't grow aquacultured oysters in a lab because they take, like I said, 50 gallons of yeah. water a day. They take down so much phytoplankton feeding. Mm-hmm. So they put them out in the environment, and then essentially, every day, the oyster farmer would go out there, probably turn the cages, because if you think about it, the top of the cage has the sunlight right. d- um, shining down on it, which is going to cause algae and things to grow on that side of the cage. So typically, they'll go flip the cage over. Okay to remove some of that, what we would call fouling, the things that are growing on it, keep the cage mm-hmm. nice and clean. Also rolling it kind of tumbles the oysters, keeps them individual, keeps things from growing on the oysters themselves.
0: So the idea isn't with the aquaculture or oyster aquaculture to grow your own private reef. It's more of your, are the oysters that are grown in aquaculture grown as individual oysters in these baskets are, or... Um,
1: That's correct. So there's lots of ways that you can culture oysters. So you could do it on the bay bottom, you know, you Mm -hmm. could grow it on the bottom. But the easiest way would be to get get them up off of the bottom so you're not dealing with like crabs and things that are on the bottom that are going to try to be eating your oysters. Yeah, And also you have them up higher in the water column where there's more oxygen in the water. And they're just easier to deal with. So, what they do, it's pretty cool. Like I said, an oyster will set on your shoe. Right. What they do is they produce in the hatchery what we call a cultchless oyster. So, they basically crush down oyster shell or some other Material till it's super fine grained, and they know exactly the size of that grain that it needs to be, such that one only one larval baby oyster can attach onto that tiny wow. bit of material, mm-hmm. and that's how they produce these seed oysters that are individual. Okay, and that's why in the bay we don't see that because mm. you have oysters on oysters on right. oysters and oysters. But if you're an oyster farm, you don't want to deal with. How do i split these apart you want a beautiful uniformly shaped Mm -hmm. nice cupped you know oyster that doesn't have anything growing on it that's what aquaculture allows you to cater towards think about you know it's the half shell oyster market when you go get oysters in the half shell you want a plate of oysters that look that also is pleasing to the right. eye you know unless it's
0: number 13 don't give me a tiny little baby oyster exactly right? i don't want exactly. the tiny one unless it's the baker's dozen
1: exactly for sure exactly
0: so when you when you say grow a more uniform with better cupping and so forth mm-hmm. are they gonna i guess since they're not growing on the reef they're not gonna have maybe they won't have that rough of a shell it'll be right. a, it'll be more like a clam almost or something or well what it'll does that look still
1: like? have the oyster shape but what we see with oysters growing on a natural reef is there are a lot of worms that will inhabit the shell. So they'll kind Mm -hmm. of pockmark the shell. You'll have uh, mussels and barnacles and things that'll attach on there. You'll have algae that grows in there. And so to me as a biologist, it looks beautiful. It's biodiversity. It's a
0: whole little kingdom. But if they
1: bring it to your plate, you know, you're picking it up and like, what is growing on this oyster? You want it to be kind of a more clean presentation. Um, And so that's what the, you know, there are techniques to do that within oyster farming that allow you to really have a more beautiful sort of restaurant ready product when it comes out of the water.
0: How does your research here at the Institute work in conjunction with oyster farming? Are you doing specific things, either you or your team, specific things to help the oyster farmers or to help with the um, the seed oysters? Or where do y'all fit in on that process?
1: Yeah. So the first thing that we're doing that, the, kind of the first step towards working together with oyster farming is that we have created a set of maps sort of a um, what we've been calling a habitat suitability tool or a restoration suitability tool that essentially is a map for every single bay in texas again from louisiana down to mexico that shows you within each of the bays by color coding where are the best places to restore oysters so Uh where is the best water quality where the most reliable oyster, have the most reliable oyster populations been located? Mm-hmm. Where are the largest numbers of baby oysters, meaning that they're spawning and you have a source that will populate your reef? So we've created these maps. Um, so if somebody wants to restore oysters, we can hand them this map mm-hmm. and say, you have money to restore oysters, put your Great. money in these best yeah. places. But that map was generated by looking at 30 plus years of Texas Parks and Wildlife data that explains to us what the best conditions are for growing oysters. Okay. So even though we created these maps for restoration purposes, mm-hmm. they're, they make a very good template for now saying if we want to grow oysters in oyster farms, where should those oyster farms be located or what, where are the best places for the oysters to grow? There are different Things that you would want to take into account in the oyst, for oyster farming though, and that's the next step we're taking is can we we're going to take these maps and now modify them for oyster farming. Okay. So for example, um, you may own land on Copano Bay mm-hmm. and you may want to be able to just walk right in and farm oysters in front of your property. Mm-hmm. So there may be something to do with access, you okay. know, accessing that land. Um, of course, you also for oyster farming have to take a lot of other things into consideration like. Um, you know, oil and gas development, pipelines, sure. you know, is there seagrass present, is there natural oyster reef present, you know, any sort of competing uses in the bay mm-hmm. have to be accounted for for these oyster farms as well.
0: So will, will Parks and Wildlife or somebody like that have to permit the oyster farm so that it's yes. not, someone's not just putting oysters down on top of seagrass that is otherwise protected or?
1: Yes, and, and we've been working with Parks and Wildlife, so we've shared these maps with them in okay. this process to help them, you know, just one more piece of information that they're considering while they're building their maps. But the way the process will work is somebody wants to get into oyster farming, they'll have to get a a coastal a, a surface lease from the, the Texas General Land Office. If you want to just put anything in the water, you have to get one of those. You, they'll have to get a, um, a permit from the Army Corps of Engineers, again, for putting something in the water. And then they'll work with Texas Parks and Wildlife who will have some sort of a permitting pro- process mm-hmm. involved, whether it's Right now, they have a stocking permit, so if you want to stock things into the water, that may be the process that they use. Um, They also will have to work with the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality because Mm -hmm. it may be viewed as needing a discharge permit because it's something held in a enclosed area in the water. But I know right now, you know, Representative Hunter and the and I'm on this task force that Mm -hmm. he put together this oyster task force and the folks within Parks and Wildlife. There's a lot of interest in making sure that this can be an industry that is supported by all of these entities. Sure. So right now the challenge is how do you fit all these pieces together because it is a new industry mm-hmm. for Texas? So I know Texas Parks and Wildlife has visited all the other coastal states and right. said, what does your process look like? What do the rules and regulations look like for you? What, what should we be considering? How do we make this an easier mm-hmm. process? So for example, some of the questions sound so basic, but sort of like, if I wanna be an oyster farmer, can I just pick a spot on the bay or do you, are you going to give me a map and say, this is your spot right. on the bay? Or are you going to give me a map and say, pick one of these mm-hmm. view spots on the bay? So that's part of it. Um, understanding, you know, from a marketing perspective, think of Brad. Sure. Again, think of going to a restaurant in New York and getting... You know, an oyster that comes from here, an oyster right. that comes from here. I just there. want
0: to order a murder point oyster, exactly. whatever it is from exactly. Alabama. Exactly.
1: <laughs> That's right. Well, they all have these different flavor profiles. Really? Right? Okay. Yes. I just of figured course. it was
0: because they were proud of their where they were oh, born, so to speak. I didn't not. know they would taste differently.
1: Come out with us one day and we will take you we will take you through Copano and Ransas Bay. And mm-hmm. as you get closer to the river, the oysters are sweeter really? and less salty. They have very le- very little salt in them. Mm-hmm. And as you get down towards the inlet with the Gulf, you have a really salty oyster. And so some i prefer a salty oyster Mm -hmm. some people prefer a sweet oyster but depending on the waters that that oyster is grown in they're going to take on the flavor profile of that part of the bay so that's that's another thing that's being worked out is if i want to be an oyster farmer can i you know can i market my oyster being from this area Mm -hmm. and it's going to taste different than an oyster comes from this area and that's really i think the value added for the industry they don't want to just take an oyster that competes with a dredged, you know, wild-caught oyster. They wanna create a product that has sort of an identity that they can use to, you know, market their product.
0: You bet, absolutely. Mm And that's probably a good business sense. What are the, do do you have knowledge of what the commercial fishermen, oystermen are thinking about this whole oyster farming thing? Are they on board with it or are they against it or a mix of both feelings?
1: Well, it'll be interesting. Well, so I think that there's probably some of both again. Um, I've been at some of these meetings where there are commercial oystermen there mm-hmm. who are interested in either getting into the industry, sure. into oyster farming. I mean, these are the guys who know everything about oysters. Mm-hmm. They get it. They know exactly where the places are that oysters are going to grow, right. what they need. So, you know, those are some of probably the the best folks to get into to oyster farming. Um, but I imagine there are probably other folks. You know, it probably it probably depends on the scale of your operation, right? Can you can you diversify into oyster farming or would you just keep fishing on the natural reefs? And my feeling is that these are gonna be two parallel industries. Okay. I don't see that oyster farming displaces or mm-hmm. gets rid of um, the natural, the wild caught oysters either. I think they're gonna be a parallel product. And those, those dredged oysters that come off of the natural reef are probably gonna be like the shucked oysters, mm-hmm. you know, where you can buy a quart of oysters and or they get sent out of state. Whereas, the again, the farmed oysters, I think, are going to be a higher-end um, half-shell
0: product. Right. So we may walk into the remodeled oyster bar here in Corpus, and instead of just having the big board with the catch of the day, we have the oyster of the day or month or something. Yes.
1: I mean, think I think that would be so awesome. And mm-hmm. just to show people, you know, you don't have to take an oyster from, you know, even different every different state in the Gulf, although you could. Because of that interesting gradient of mm-hmm. rainfall and and um, temperature that we have in Texas, you could take an oyster from every different bay in Texas mm-hmm. or even different places within different bays in Texas and you will have a plate full of a variety of flavors that are really quite different from each other.
0: What excites you most about the work that you're doing here at the Institute? Is there a particular project or something kind of coming around the corner that you're in? A, perhaps in addition to aquaculture or is it aquaculture? What are you super excited about coming up here?
1: That's a hard one. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I love my job. I mean, I just think, I can't imagine something else that would get me up in the morning like this where it's, you know, I really get to to help use science to solve mm-hmm. problems, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico. So the project that I talked about looking at the different types of materials for reef restoration, yeah. I'm super excited because I think of there's possibility to kind of wag the industry a little bit, mm-hmm. like get people to use it, uh, you know, change their perspective. That- so that one's great. We have a um, another interesting project that's getting started. We're working with the comptroller's office up in Matagorda Bay.
0: Okay. The comp-
1: I know it sounds kind of crazy. <laughs> and
0: they're taxing Matagorda Bay. No, right. <laughs> what, what are the they comptroller doing? The comptroller's
1: office, it turns out, has some responsibility for uh, managing endangered species in the state of Texas.
0: I had no idea. I mean, I guess in a I way it's no like the Railroad Commission even. running oil and gas. and right, it, we just right. We have these... Commissions or agencies that we give them nice names and then they get to do all sorts of other things Yeah They
1: have lots of different types okay. of responsibilities that you wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. know until it kind of falls under your preview. Right. So um, a colleague of mine here at the Institute Greg stuns um, He as he runs the sport fish Center here okay. at the Institute And so his lab is really well known for studying a lot of the different fish populations mm-hmm. and doing shark tagging and being on shark week You know folks may, he, sure. Yeah, he, he gets to do some cool things,
0: right, but uh, oysters are amazing Oysters for are sure. amazing.
1: Their habitat a little for all those less things. flashy than sharks, right. a tiny bit. but but tiny they're
0: bit. they're equally amazing. That's right, and far more important, and less likely to bite your leg off.
1: Definitely true. Yes, although you could still get a nasty
0: cut. <laughs> <laughs> also true. So I'm sorry I interrupted you, but go ahead with the you were talking about the the project with the controller's office. office. Yeah.
1: So the controller's office was really interested in. They felt like the Matagorda Bay system is sort of this understudied system in. The state of Texas. So there are a lot of people up, you know, Texas and Galveston that mm-hmm. are focusing on Galveston. We're down here in Corpus Christi. We have a good understanding of Corpus Christi, Nueces Bay, Copadon right. Aransas Bay, but kind of stuck there in the middle is Matagorda Bay. And mm-hmm. so they, um, they have funded a study with a lot of us uh, involved. So Dr. Stuns, myself, um, Dr. Wetz here, Dr. Pam Plotkin from Texanum and uh, College Station. She okay. is a sea turtle biologist. And so there's our endangered species mm-hmm. expertise right there. Sure. And then we also have um, two um, faculty members from Texanum Galveston. And then we mm-hmm. are also working with a consulting firm. So it's this real ensemble wow. approach mm-hmm. to studying the health of the Matagorda Bay ecosystem. So we're looking at everything from water quality mm-hmm. to food webs to fisheries. To these endangered species, like where, what parts of the bay are the sea turtles using? What are they feeding on? Sure. And then that information hopefully can help, you know, manage the Matagorda Bay system to sustain endangered species mm-hmm. that depend on it. These these different sea turtles. So Pam's group has been out tagging sea turtles. Um, they're tagging some of them with um, kind of radio transmitter type mm-hmm. tags, and they're 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 tagging others with these satellite tags. So they record different types of information, but can help us understand mm-hmm. where are they going in the Bay? Where okay. are they spending their most time? Are they leaving the Bay? And we'll kind of piece all this together to understand, you know, how to better manage the health of the Metagorda Bay system. So that one's cool because it's just fun to work with people who are just experts in their mm-hmm. fields. And, sure. you know, in any field, I think, Things get done when you talk to people who know things that you don't know. And so we've found all these overlapping interests, and we've kind of been shaping the questions that we've been asking, and Mm -hmm. again, it's like the final product is going to be much bigger than the sum of its parts because of that. Awesome. So that's pretty cool. And then the the other project I'm really excited about is we do some work down in Baffin Bay. And so Baffin Bay, as many people know, is is known sort of as the jewel of trout and Mm -hmm. black drum fishing in, in Texas. You know it's this crazy seemingly inhospitable bay that can get incredibly high salinity right. it's incredibly hot um, it's really unique you know it's it's got the king ranch along the mm-hmm. shoreline there and really not a lot of development or the development is you know small communities that are right. kind of far afield but
0: and it's if, full of rocks.
1: If, if you're a fisherman you know it's full of rocks. <laughs> right. And it turns out that those rocks are made from these tiny worms from mm-hmm. the, they're called serpulid worms and they make these tiny calcium carbonate tubes. And those tubes, over thousands of years, have made these rocks, or what we call serpulid reefs, and everybody else calls Baffin's rocks. And some right. people use curse words because they find them with their. <laughs> they with they their can boat. be unfortunate.
0: For exactly. Sure. exactly. I, I'm gonna. I'll tell the audience listening that you showed me an, a sample of these, and I can't pronounce it. Serpulid. Serpulid. Serpulid um, rocks, and the the worm shoots, if you can imagine, just a bunch, millions of little shoots sticking up like an organ. Mhm. Um, oh. They're not any bigger than like a pencil head each right. individual one. But there are thousands probably on this little, there's about a six by four piece of Serpulid Reef. It's pretty amazing to know that the rocks are actually not big giant boulders. They're actually living ecosystems that yes. you mentioned when we were talking before we started recording that there are all kinds of other organi- organisms now that have taken over because the the worms are gone, potentially. Right. But a whole new system of living organisms have come on onto these serpulid rocks, yes,
1: so the the worms, the <clears> species <throat> of worms that built those reefs over time are likely no longer living on those reefs anymore. so mm-hmm. there are other types of serpulid worms that live on those reefs okay. and are but probably are not able to to create those huge structures that we see down there so the the challenge is uh, well, so if you what what i'll step back and say really quickly Mm -hmm. is that people have tried to age those reefs and they think that those reefs are about three thousand years old so these things have been there forever i mean they're just this iconic structure Mm -hmm. these serpulid reefs are incredibly unique they only exist maybe two or three other places in the world so they are just this this amazing thing that is worth studying Mm -hmm. and learning about preserving and conserving and restoring if we can and so what we've been doing is trying to understand the ecological role of these things Mm -hmm. so we, we know there have been some studies published that have said over time, because of a lot of things like boats hitting them or, you know, wave action that's breaking them apart, that those reefs have shrunken in size, but also in distribution. They're not okay. located in all the places they used to be. And where they are located, people talk about how they were cresting out of the water and mm-hmm. now they're just crumbled gravel on the bottom of the bay. And so what we're very interested in is trying to use some of the 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 expertise that we have in habitat restoration from mm-hmm. oyster reefs, can we apply that to try to help save or restore, or you know, enhance the serpulid reefs that are left? And so, we're going to be starting a project this next year to try to start from the bottom. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not really much out there to say what will work. Right. So we'll probably start by doing some little test pilot reefs again, mm-hmm. using different materials maybe in different parts of the water column, maybe in different configurations to see can we get the same community of organisms to attach and live on these reefs. And, you know, if we can't recreate exactly that community, can we maybe even remove some of the fishing pressure and provide some recreational fishing benefits that may also pull some of that pressure away from those natural reefs and in that in that way Mm add some protection to the, the natural environment. So we are Really excited because it just seems, it seems like uh, very timely. You sure, know? Absolutely. time could be running out for those reefs, and so we right. really want to do something to try to.
0: And you've recently them. developed a deeper expertise in can I call them synthetic reefs? Just yes. For, okay. So you've we developed a, artificial. <clears throat> artificial. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense too. That's yeah. probably better than synthetic. So you you developed a, an expertise in the process or the, the yeah the process for building an artificial reef. Right from finding the material and so forth, that maybe that process can be or will be it sounds like applied to the reefs or the rocks in Baffin Bay.
1: That's what we're hoping. And okay. you know, when you uh, one of my research associates, Terry Palmer, he's he took a video. He was diving down on the serpulid reefs one mm-hmm. day while they were sampling, and again, it looks like a coral reef. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looks like there are fish swimming through these holes in the reef, and there's all these critters. It's crawling with things. And it's very beautiful. Mm-hmm. But again, because our waters are typically really turbid, you know, right. they're very productive waters. There's lots of
0: <laughs> fuel.
1: Fu- or not fuel. If there's you, lots of fu- food. Right. If you're support, an oyster, it's a great right? place to live. Exactly. Because our
0: waters are going to shove a lot of stuff by you. Yes.
1: You have a lot to eat. Yes. And, but it's the same thing down in Baffin Bay. You yeah, can't yeah. really see them, but they are just these amazing habitats. Mm-hmm. And they're worth, they're worth preserving. You know, they're probably the reason or in, they play a supporting role sure. in the fact that these fisheries are so great down in that region mm-hmm. of, our, of our state.
0: Well, it makes sense. If they're, the, if they're the reason that a lot of the game bait fish are there, so to speak, mm-hmm. then the game fish are going to be there too. Yes, exactly. They tend exactly. to follow what they eat, for sure. So y'all have been in Corpus since 2007. Do y'all have children? Kind of give us a little bit about Jenny Pollock, the individual and the mom and yeah. the yes, wife and so forth. Yes,
1: my, my, my other <clears throat> full-time job. Right,
0: your other full-time job, exactly. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we have two Uh little Texans. We had two kids since Mm -hmm. we've been living in Corpus, um, Orly and Luca, nine and seven. And um, yeah, we, you know, they they have their own little community of of kids and friends now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the longer that you are, in Corpus Christi, the deeper your roots grow. And, you know, their little roots have grown here too. They have the things that they love to do. So, I mean, as a family, we are, every Sunday, we go to the beach. That's our thing. Sunday mornings. Um, we have a good, we call them the Sunday, Sunday fun day beach crew. We got a big group of people who will, <coughs> that's awesome. who will go out sure. there and lots of kids running mm-hmm. around and dads surfing and mom's drinking mm-hmm. coffee or cocktails or whatever the morning <laughs> right whatever for. it deserves exactly um so we love that it gets us out to the beach every day Kid. or every every week and for you know jeff my husband he shapes surfboards and is mm-hmm. a surfer and just a general kind of waterman so it's kind of in his blood to be out in the water and mm-hmm. for me as a marine scientist it's just kind of like the yeah. same thing kind of taking the pulse of what's happening in the water mm-hmm. um and the kids love it too like they'll go out now and jeff will push them into waves on his surfboard and awesome. um, so we love to do that um you know the kids are 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 learning what they like. So, you know, soccer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, piano. My daughter is sure. doing Chica's Rock and learns awesome. to play electric guitar. Um, we love to you know go out to eat. There's so many great great mm-hmm. places to eat, and we love to like take the kids to all the kind of. Um, kid-friendly activities that are happening so mm-hmm. you know last week they were at the art museum doing the the saturday art sure. we we'll take them to the free family art at the art center mm-hmm. on saturday mornings too um awesome. so yeah we're we try to get out and about and if there's one thing i can say about corpus maybe that i love the most it's it is just I, who i never would have thought Almost thirteen years ago, that Corpus <laughs> Christi today would be where it is today. Right, absolutely. I true. mean, what an awesome yeah. place to be living right now! Mm-hmm. To just see all the changes, and I feel like an old person saying this, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of like, look at all the young people right. who are staying, yeah, and they're, exactly. but it's they're true. building businesses, and they're, they're making. Mm-hmm. There's a creative community here, right. and there's just the culture, and the music, and the food, mm-hmm. and everything. I mean, I love getting the Bend Magazine every month because. Every single month, there is something new. Somebody has started something new Mm -hmm. in this community. And I feel like the community has been so ready for it and is so ready for Mm -hmm. it. And, you know, we try to get out and support all those things. We want all those things to succeed Absolutely true.
0: Yes. So I have one final question for you, and it's going to put you on the spot a little bit. I'm not going to ask you to tell us where the best place to get oysters and corpus is, but what is your favorite style of oyster to eat, your favorite preparation? Oh,
1: that's easy. Raw.
0: Okay. Do you are you a raw just that's it? Or are you a raw cracker, horseradish, et cetera, et cetera? Oh. Do you like to dress it raw or yeah. just slurp it right out of the shell?
1: Well, so I mean if we're out on the boat and mm-hmm. we have to, you know, sample the oyster, then it's just Bless gonna be right out of the water. Yeah. Um, which is delicious. Mm-hmm. But um I like it. I I I like some spice. So, yeah. you know, cocktail spicy cocktail sauce mm-hmm. with horseradish or Tabasco sauce. Sure. I, I will say that the other way that I really like to eat oysters is um is sort of a roasted or grilled oyster. So this is something that we brought. That's back to your roots. Yeah, so that is very South Carolina. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, heat sure. it so it up so just oyster. pops open uh-huh. a little bit. But I will say that Brad at Water Street, they serve a pecan crusted oyster that is to die for. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort it's of like incredible. if you want to ask me my last meal, give me those pecan crusted oysters. <laughs> That's kind
0: of the holy grail of Texas food though because it uses our Texas tree, the pecan tree, okay. and it uses our I'm just going to claim oysters for Texas. It uses I, one I of our primary products here in the yeah. state. Yeah, yeah, and they're That's delicious. Awesome. They are delicious.
1: And if you go eat oysters mm-hmm. at Water Street, we will recycle your That's shells. That's right. There's
0: the added benefit that you can, ser- right. can serve the environment for That's sure. Right. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time to come on thank the show. You. I this really appreciate fun. it. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. Jenny's at the forefront of exciting new industries and marine habitat restoration and health here in the Coastal Bend. She's been a key leader in opening Texas waters to mariculture, and she continues to develop new methods for the restoration of the reefs that we know as the Baffin Bay Rocks, which are so critical for providing the habitat for the fish that we love to chase in Baffin. Keep a sharp eye on the Caller Times for news about Jenny and her research, and be sure to read the interview with her in the Bend Magazine by Kylie Cooper, which you can find in the Seafood Issue, appropriately, or on the Bend's website. Please don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Corpus. Thank you to our infrastructure partners, The Sound Guys, Clint Tucker Holmes, and Sawyer Audiology. And thank you for taking time to listen.